Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, hello, and how are you? And welcome to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss some of the best moments, best names, and best memories in sports history. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and I sincerely hope that you're having a good day, good evening, or good night, wherever you're listening. And we're back again with another show highlighting the best in sports history. <clears throat> and I appreciate you taking time out to give us a quick listen. Now, as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here and check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. Now, on this edition of the podcast, we're going to go deep in the heart of Texas. In April of 1965, the new Harris County Dome Stadium opened its doors for the first time. And over a period of 40 plus years, this edifice known as the Astrodome has been the site of so many great moments of not only sports, but entertainment as well. In our main event, we talked to Beth Radauer Jackson of the Astrodome Conservancy. She shared with us the purpose of her organization, as well as the cultural significance that the eighth wonder of the world has had on not only in Southeast Texas, but the entire country. Later in our top five, we'll count down the top five events that made the Astrodome so significant in the world of sports. And finally, we'll wrap up the show with our shout out. On this episode, we're going to send a shout out to Houston's original Major League Baseball team that changed its name to the Astros. A team that has had a, to- that had a totally different identity, but was appropriate for the rocket style synonymous with the Lone Star State. So sit back and pump up the volume and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a, a proud member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But... Have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. And we're back, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and we're going to be doing a little something. We're doing a little interview today with a, with a 
very, very nice lady named Beth Wedewer, and she is part of what is called the Astrodome Conservancy. Mm-hmm. And um, since th- this past weekend was the anniversary of the opening of the Astrodome, uh, we're going to get a little insight on her organization as well as a little bit of insight on the Astrodome itself. Now, as a lot of you may know that the Astrodome have gone have had many names over the years, unofficial that is, everything from the eighth wonder of the world to the House of Pain. But it officially started off as the Harris County Domed Stadium. And to talk more about that is Miss Beth. And Beth, glad to have you aboard and thank you for coming on. Wonderful, Dana. Thanks so much for having me this morning. And uh, let's talk about your organization a little bit. It is the Astrodome Conservancy. And what is that pretty much about? Yeah, um, the Astrodome Conservancy is a relatively young organization. We are a private nonprofit, so we raise all of our funds uh, to operate and, and advocate uh, privately. And um, we raise those funds privately. <laughs> we advocate very publicly on behalf of the Astrodome. So we exist um, to ensure the preservation and uh, smart and viable uh, redevelopment of the Astrodome uh, here in Houston. And at the center of our mission is really public access. So uh, over the years since the Astrodome has been shuttered um, in 2009, um, you know, over the last decade or so, there have been plenty of ideas, some of them really great, some of them a little kooky, um, and some of them really had some legs. And those private uh, uh, proposals uh, that came with funding are the ones that, that we envision um, inserting ourselves into in terms of, of advocating for public access. This is the people's house. This is still the Harris County Domed Stadium. It is owned by Harris County. Uh, and we believe strongly that um, as a historic and cultural landmark and asset, uh, the people of Harris County need to have access to this building. Well, that's great. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, now I live in Atlanta, okay, but I grew up about two hours west of Houston in a little town called New Iberia, Louisiana. So we know all about the Astrodome, at least I do, and um, been to Astroworld a number of times. I've been to, actually, I've been to only one Astros game in my life, which was in 84, which I'm not telling on my age too much, but um yeah it was it was a really cool experience and having somebody and I've heard a lot of the different ideas that they were talking about turning the Astrodome into certain things what is what is the main thing that, that that you would like to see done with the dome you know since it's been pretty much closed down and 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 wanted to be redeveloped into something is there anything mm-hmm. that you would like to see done you personally you know, I'll- I'll start off, Dana, with my favorite idea that that I've heard over the decade that I've been working in this um, in the Astrodome uh, orbit. Uh, My favorite idea was to um, fill the dome, the 35 feet that are below grade, uh, fill the dome with water and float life size battleships, real battleships in it and play battleship. And I thought that was just (laughs) (laughs) would be so much fun. But uh, that is not what the Conservancy advocates for. Um, We actually have 
yet to put forth a plan. We have helped uh, numerous different entities work to gauge the feasibility or the practicality of different ideas for redevelopment of the Astrium. We work uh, closely with Harris County, um, previous administrations and the current administration uh, to answer the question, what do we do with the dome? And the Astrodome Conservancy's primary um, interest, as I said earlier, is ensuring public access. We feel, although we don't have a, a plan put forth um, currently, we feel strongly that the character of the building is based in its physical infrastructure. It's, it's the built um, dome that is there is so important to um, the history of the building and also its future reuse. So um, we we do advocate for preserving the building as it is. Um, that's not to say there won't be and can't be alterations and modifications to make it practical for a current day use. Um, but that building is special and significant on a national level recognized because in part the reason it was built. It was built in a period of ingenuity and innovation at mid-century when the weather down here, the rain, the mosquitoes, the storms in the afternoon and the humidity made it unbearable to sit and watch baseball. And well, so the, the Astrodome, and uh, the Astrodome is a product of that. And um, again, we feel strongly that that's an important part of its history and story and that that needs to be saved. Um, I, we would love to see it vibrant, alive, people coming and going. I can envision a mix of uh, retail, restaurants, commercial, institutional um, you know, it'd be great to have some educational components, some STEM components. Um, the thing about the Astrodome that I think is a challenge to its redevelopment is it is huge. Yes. So you've got, you know, 18 stories. You've got nine acres under that roof, column free. And then you have almost 500,000 square feet of space in the concourse levels. You've got nine concourses that ring the dome. Um, and that is significant square footage. And so how do we preserve the mass and the volume of the open space that makes it so unique and that is so awe-inspiring, as you know, when you walk into the building and yet utilize that concourse space and in a creative and innovative way that allows us to create a revenue stream to sustain the building. Um, the other thing that Conservancy advocates for is the private investment in the Astrodome. So we don't, we believe strongly that this should not be a burden on the taxpayers of Harris County. This should not be a building, although the building is 100% paid for and out of debt right now. Um, it's not something that we envision the county uh, or a city county entity taking on and, 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 maintaining using primarily taxpayer dollars. There needs to be a revenue stream. There can be a revenue stream to sustain the building and its maintenance and operations going forward. Oh, cool. I mean, you have, there's a lot of different things that you can do with it. And there's over, over the years, I saw a lot of different ideas that was brought forth. One of those I thought was kind of I thought was kind of neat personally was they were trying to construct, they were thinking about gutting the building completely where the only thing that was left would be just the, just the basic 
iron and steel skeleton of the of the structure and just making a walkway to go yeah. all the way around, all the way up to the top of the of the dome. I thought that was pretty neat um, to do. And then and then underneath it, you would have like fairs and different outdoor activities, a rodeo maybe, and or that, that sort of thing. I thought that was pretty neat. You know, with that's them. a neat idea. I'm not sure the practicality of it. Yeah, you think about the, the structure the and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I don't know if that how that would really work structurally. You know, I'm not like an there. engineer or anything, but uh, that just seemed a little. I thought it was interesting, maybe a little bit far fetched, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think there are, are over the years there have been some incredibly creative um, ideas for the reuse um, and the. The I think the challenge is finding one that fits um, the protections that are placed on the building. So the building is recognized as historically significant, and that does come with some protections. Right. Um, you know, recognizing why and 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 what about the building uh, is significant. Um, you've got to have again. There's got to be a revenue stream, and when you yes. talk about taking it down to its, you know, to the uh, to the steel structure and creating that outdoor space. Um, that revenue stream becomes a little, you know, a little more challenging. It's doable, but but um, yeah. it, it's a little more difficult. So um, again, there have been some incredible private ideas come forward to date. None of those have had the funding accompanying them to make the project work, and so that's why the Astrome Conservancy uh, speaks so so uh, often and loudly about the public-private partnership. Um, this is a public building that we hope and, and intend will continue to serve the public. So there's got to be public skin in the game, uh, but it doesn't need to rest solely on the, the checkbook of Harris County. And so uh, there's got to be the private investment and revenue stream um, to, to pair those two together, the public-private partnership there are lots of incentives for this building. Uh, there are lots of financial incentives based on its cultural value, uh, on the, the age and location of the building. So that's really where we um, see ourselves as, an, as a, um, a partner with any developer uh, and with the county in bringing those uh, resources and that information and knowledge to the conversation about the Astrodome. Now you had mentioned earlier that you that the, the when the dome was built in the early to mid nineteen sixties, it was during the height of you know the space race, and Houston was of course the center, the you know the, the epicenter of the space race, and trying to get to the moon and all of that other stuff. And Astrodome was kind of like fit right into that type of attitude that Houston had at the time. You know, do you think how or how much of an impact did you think the Astrodome had nationally of having that as being the, I guess you could say the symbol of the city of Houston and how yep. that was, you know, so impactful on the nation as a whole of, of, of you know, being Houston as being recognized as, okay, this is what Houston's known for. Other cities are known for other things, but Houston is known for the Astrodome. And, and I can speak for that because, Growing up in Louisiana, like I did, only two hours away, 
you know, when you thought of Houston, you thought of two things as a kid. You thought of the Astrodome and Astroworld, which was, of course, next door to each other. So, you know, talk right. about that as, you know, the impact that it had on the city of Houston as far as its image. Well, I think you've nailed it. I mean, I, I'm coming up on my 10 year anniversary as a Houstonian. And I, honestly, the only thing I knew about the city before I moved here was the Astrodome. So it is the symbol of Houston. Uh, but you're right. It was much larger than just Houston. It symbolized the race to space, energy exploration. I mean, it's made of, you know, concrete and steel. It's, it's the largest, was at the time, the largest span um, in the world. It represents the can-do spirit of Houston, but really of the country coming out of World War II. I mean, we, we were at mid-century, there were new materials, there were new uh, building methods and um, technology. Engineering had advanced coming out of the war. Um, the growth, you know, the boomers, the, it was just exponential growth. And you know, Kennedy was here in Houston, uh, I think, to dedicate Rice, the, the Rice University football stadium yeah, um, and gave right. his man to, you know, let's send a man to the moon speed. And that really, I mean, Houston really uh, embodies that period and that hope and that spirit, that innovative spirit. We can do this. There are no barriers. Um, and, and I think that still rings true today uh, in Houston. But it's an interesting um, it's an interesting conversation to have because all of that innovation and forward looking and exploration uh, that Houston is known for in that it continues to, you know, to, to plow ahead um, with even today. I mean, that, that still needs to be rooted in some sort of history and identity. And that's what the Astrodome is. Um, and, and it's really a neat uh, opportunity to take those new technologies and, and a new generation of innovators and see if we can't solve the problem of how do we reuse the Astrodome? It's a, it, it was a groundbreaking facility for so many reasons, engineering, the period, the materials, you know, lots of folks don't know that the, that the Harris County Dome State first intentionally designed integrated building uh, in Houston and Harris County. It played a crucial role in the desegregation of Houston and Harris County. It was the first building that was again, designed and demanded to be for all people, for all folks in Harris County. Now, see, that that I did not know. See, whenever you listen to this show, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to learn something new. That's <laughs> something I didn't know um, uh, about that. Um, now, you said that you wasn't, you're not a native of Houston, but, you know, but at the same time, you know, were there like any events that took place in the Astrodome that you just remember? Like when you think of the Astrodome, okay, I remember that happened there. Was there any event like that 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 comes into mind whenever you think of that place? Well, I um, unfortunately didn't land here until 2013, and the Astrodome closed for the last time uh, in 2009. Um, and so I did not I get to experience an event in the Astrodome during its heyday, but I've spent quite a bit of time there in the last 10 years. Um, it is still, even through the dust and the uh, feral cats that run around and, uh, you know, a, a little moldy smell now and then when it's a rainy day, 
day. Um, it is still a magical place. So uh, there are times when I have stood, uh, you know, in, in center field uh, on the ground of the dome and um, just imagined what it was like in its heyday. Um, and so I look forward to the time when we can open those doors once again and introduce future generations to this building and the stories um, that, that accompany it. I think one of the most fascinating things, and I'll kind of wrap up here. Um, okay. One of the most fascinating things to me in working on this project, the Astrodome and its, its future, is um, the, the sheer emotion that this building draws. I, my career has been in historic preservation, and so I work with saving old buildings buildings uh, for, for almost 20 years now. And okay. I've yet to find a building, a physical structure that evokes such strong emotion as I have this place. So although we can talk about the engineering feat that it was to span nine acres, column free, we can talk about the architectural design, we can talk about the innovation, the materials, the can-do spirit. I think what makes this project special and what makes me know that the Astrodome will be redeveloped and reused one day in the future is the love that Houstonians and Harris County residents and people across the country like yourself, Dana, have for this building because of the memories they made there, the Astros games they went to, the, you know, the, the uh, season tickets they had, the Selena concert, the Elvis show, the rodeo, the monster truck pulls, the high school grand graduations, the football games, Love You Blue, people experienced those with their family and their friends. There were engagements, there were uh, <laughs> birthdays celebrated, there were, you know, sometimes two and three generations in the seats together. Um, and those are the memories associated with the Astrodome that make this building so special. I see you made me jealous because you had a chance to stand in center field at the Astrodome. And I'm like, bro, I would kill for something have that experience well, just hey. walk around on the field <laughs> uh, just in just in the vast emptiness just look around at the empty stadium and just like oh this would be so oh gosh you're i'm jealous i'm jealous well, hey dana <laughs> call me next time you're in houston and we'll, uh, look, i got i got relatives in baytown so i may be down there pretty soon in the uh, good. <laughs> good. well, Beth, well i have was... so enjoyed visiting with you thank you so much for the opportunity Oh, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you coming on and you're a friend of the show. And then um, one more time, introduce yourself to the um, to the audience, who you are and what's your position with the Astrodome Conservancy? Sure. My name is Beth Weedower Jackson. I'm the executive director of the Astrodome Conservancy um, here in Houston, Texas. And we work to, to ensure a bright future for the eighth wonder of the world, our Astrodome. Thank you, Ms. Beth. Thank you for coming on. And we'll be right back, folks. Hello 
and welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you're locked into the Historically Speaking Sports podcast, where we relive the best that the history of sports could offer. And we're also a proud member of the Sports History Network. Now, before we get on with the rest of the show, one sign that we're growing here at Historically Speaking Sports, as well as the Sports History Network, is that we have a sponsor, which is newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan like myself. And if you're into sports history, you definitely need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the United States, from Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, and so many more countries dating back from the 1700s all the way up to yesterday. Now, to get a free one-week subscription to newspapers.com, you could do this by visiting the sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you'll be helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Also, please check out our Twitter feed at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. Also, you could drop us a line or two at our email address, which is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button where you hear wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes whenever they come out. And now, this week's top five, we're going to count down the five biggest and most memorable sports moments that took place in the Astrodome throughout its illustrious history. So, here we go. Number five, the Miami Dolphins versus the Houston Oilers on Monday Night Football. On the date was November the 20th, 1978, in a packed and raucous Astrodome in front of a national television audience on Monday Night Football. That night, it was the Miami Dolphins behind legendary coach Don Shula taking on the surprising Houston Oilers led by head coach O.A. Bum Phillips. This was the day, this was the heyday of the Love Your Blue phenomenon that took hold in Southeast Texas. Frank Gifford said that this was maybe the most exciting game he had ever broadcast in his long history of doing Monday Night Football. The lead changed hands several times, but the game will be remembered for the performance of rookie running back and Heisman Trophy winner, the Tyler Rose Earl Campbell. After scoring on a one-yard punch in the first quarter, Campbell exploded in the second half, scoring three times, including an electrifying 81-yard touchdown run down the sidelines, outrunning Dolphin defensive back Curtis Johnson to seal the win 35-30. Campbell would finish the game with 199 yards rushing on 28 carries and four touchdowns. The win propelled the Oilers to the postseason for the first time since playing in the AFC AFL Divisional Playoffs in 1969 against the Oakland Raiders. Number four, Nolan Ryan pitches record fifth no-hitter. On September the 26, 1981, Nolan Ryan, the native Texan fireballer, pitched his fifth no-hitter, breaking the record held by Sandy Koufax and blanking the rival Los Angeles Dodgers 5-0. In addition to the record, Ryan became the third pitcher to record a no-hitter in both leagues. Ryan finished his dazzling performance with 11 strikeouts and only three walks in the contest. Houston would finish the season with their second postseason appearance in the strike-short 1981 Major League Baseball season. Number 3. Game 6 of the 1986 National League Championship Series between the Houston Astros and the New York Mets. 
on October the 15, 1986, the New York Mets faced the Astros in the Astrodome in the sixth game of the National League Championship Series. The Mets were holding a three-games-to-two series lead and were only one win away from their first World Series appearance since 1973. Meanwhile, the Astros were looking to tie the series and force a Game 7. The Astros' hopes rested on the arm of the, on the left arm of Bob Nepper. If the Astros were to win Game 6, Game 7 starter would be Houston ace Mike Scott, who pitched a no-hitter against the Giants to clinch the National League Western Division title in the series to, up to this point. And, had, and up to this point, Scott had won 11 to nothing. Had won Game One, eleven, one nothing, and Game Four, three to one at Shea Stadium. The Astros would take a three-game, would take a three-nothing lead into the bottom of the first inning and would stay that way until the top of the ninth, when the Mets rallied to tie the game at three, driving Nepper from the game. Houston would go quietly in the bottom of the ninth, heading to extra innings. The score would stay three to three until the top of the fourteenth, when Wally Backman scored Daryl Strawberry on a single to right field. In the, bottom of the half, in the bottom half of that same inning, Astros facing possible elimination, Billy Hastier blasted a solo home run down the left field line to tie the game at four. The 15th inning went scoreless, and in the top of the 16th, the Mets scored three runs to explode to a seven to four advantage. All may have seen loss for the Astros, but in the bottom half of the inning, Houston mounted a rally. With one out, David Lopes on first base after a walk, reached first base after a walk. Bill Doran's single, which was followed by Billy Hatcher's RBI single, uh, scoring Lopes. After a Denny Walling ground out, Glenn Davis single scoring Doran, and Davis moved into scoring position at second base. With the Astrodome in a frenzy, it was all up to Kevin Bass. Yet it was not meant to be. As Jesse Orozco, the relief pitcher for the Mets, struck out Bass and the Mets claimed the pennant in exciting fashion 7-6 in 16 innings. Despite the loss, Houston pitcher Mike Scott was named the series' most valuable player in a losing effort. Meanwhile, the Mets would go on to win their second World Series in franchise history, beating the Boston Red Sox in seven games. Number 2. The Tennis Battle of the Sexes, Billie Jean King versus Bobby Riggs. On September 20th, 1973, in a nationally televised tennis match in prime time on ABC, 55-year-old Bobby Riggs took on the women's top player and 29-year-old Billie Jean King in the Astrodome. King entered the court in the style of Cleopatra on a feather-adorned litter carried by four bare-chested muscle men dressed in the style of ancient slaves. Riggs followed up in a rickshaw drawn by a bevy of models. Riggs presented King with a giant sugar daddy lollipop, and she responded by giving him a squealing piglet, a symbol of male chauvinism. King, who, who also complete, competed in the Virginia Slims of Houston during the same week, dominated Riggs in straight sets, winning 6-4, 6-3, 6-3, despite falling behind in the first set. The tennis match had an audience of estimated 50 million in the United States and 90 million worldwide. The attendance in the Astrodome was 30,472. It still remains the largest audience to see a tennis match in the United States and the number one most memorable event to take place in the historic Astrodome. The college basketball game of the century, UCLA versus Houston. On January the 20th, 1968, 
52,693 fans showed up at the Houston Astrodome to witness what was billed as college basketball's game of the century. It featured number one UCLA with center Lou Alcindor and number two Houston, led by All-American Elvin Hayes. The Bruins were riding a then NCAA record 47-game winning streak, while the Cougars had reeled off 31 straight wins at home as both teams came into the game unbeaten. It was the first NCAA regular season game broadcast nationwide in prime time. It established college basketball as a sports commodity on television and paved the way for the modern March Madness television coverage. The game came down to the final two minutes and the score tied at 69. Hayes took a shot and was fouled by Bruins reserve Jim Nielsen and Hayes playing with four fouls in the second half scored on two free throws. On the final possession of the game, UCLA's All-American guard Mike Warren committed a rare mental error by deflecting out of bounds and pass meant for UCLA star shooter Lynn Shackelford, who was unguarded in the corner. In the end, the Cougars pulled the upset, 71-69, ending the Bruins' 47-game winning streak. So that was this week's Top 5. And coming up next is our shout-out segment. We're going to send a shout out to a team that had called Houston, had called the city of Houston home for only three seasons and paved the way for the construction of the Astrodome. Stay tuned. with our final segment of the show which is what we call our shout out now today we are sending a shout out to the to a team that came into the national league in the early 1960s as an expansion team known as the houston Colt 45s the precursor to the houston astros on october the 17th 1960 the national league granted an expansion franchise to the houston sports association for them to play in the 1962 season they were established as the Houston Colt 45s and they entered the National League as an expansion team along with the New York Mets. Now, the new Houston team was named the Colt 45s after a Name the Team contest which was won by William Irvin Nieder. The Colt 45s was well known as the gun that won the West. The colors were selected were navy and orange. And the first team was formed mostly through an expansion draft after the 1961 season. The Colt 45s and their expansion cousins, the New York Mets, took, took turns choosing players left unprotected by other National League franchises. Their home field would be Colt Stadium, which was a temporary stadium until their new all-weather ballpark would be completed just beyond the left field fence. But for the time being, the Colt 45 would have to brave heat, humidity, ravenous mosquitoes, and persistent summer rain showers common in Southeast Texas. The Colt 45 started their inaugural season on April the 10th, 1962 against the Chicago Cubs with Harry Kraft as Colt 45's manager. Bob Aspromati scored the first run in Colt 45's on Al Spangler's triple in the first inning. 
They started the season with a three-game sweep of the Cubs, but eventually finished eighth among National League ten, the National League's ten teams. The team's best pitcher, Richard Turk Farrell, lost 20 games despite an ERA of 3.02. A starter for the Colt 45, Farrell was primarily a relief pitcher prior to playing in Houston. The Colt 45 would finish the season with a mark of 64 and 96. The 1963 season saw more young talent mixed in with seasoned veterans. Future All-Stars Jimmy Wynn, Rusty Staub, and Joe Morgan all made major league debuts in the 1963 season. However, Houston's position in the standings did not improve. At the Colt 45s finished in ninth place with a 66-96 record. The team was still building, trying to find that perfect mix to compete. In the, 19, the 1964 campaign began on a sad note, as relief Jim Umbright died of cancer at the age of 33 on April the 8th, just before opening day. Umbright was the only Colt 45's pitcher to post a winning record in Houston's first two seasons. He was so well liked by the players and the fans that the team retired his jersey number 32 in 1965. Just on the horizon, the structure of the new Dome Stadium was more prevalent and it would, be, it would soon change the way that baseball was watched in Houston as well as around the league. On December 1st, 1964, the team announced the name change from Code 45 to the Astros. So that does it for this show. Thank you guys for listening, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. And also feel free to drop us a line here at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com or on our Twitter page at historicallysp2. So until next time, thank you guys for listening and take care. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.